Our scripture this morning is the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place they called the, to the, place, they called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscript, this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast our lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the blessed word of our Father. Recently, our family was in the kitchen. We were, I think Wendy was preparing dinner. We were just hanging out and uh, began to kind of poke fun at each other and laugh and just have a great time. Just one of those evenings where it was just the four of us. It was Trent and Wendy and Hannah and I. And we're just having one of those, you know, just times and uh, it just erupted in laughter and when it finished uh, I don't remember which one of the kids but one of them looked at the rest of us and said I love our family and in that moment we all agreed we just so enjoyed one another and then we took a picture and put it on Facebook so everybody would think that's how it is all the time (laughs) just kidding but uh, but we so enjoyed that moment And the reason I share this is to say that in order to understand the gravity of what happens in John 19 and in the crucifixion of Jesus, we have to go back in history pre-creation. We have to go back all the way ahead of creation. And when we do, we see a picture of God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit together in this remarkable relationship 
The Father loves the Son deeply. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. And the Son loves the Spirit. And the Father loves the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father. And the three are together in one. And one in three. And there is no disharmony at all. It is a remarkable relationship that they share. As a matter of fact, Tim Keller says the only reason God would have for creating us was not to get the cosmic love and joy of relationship because he already had that, but to share it. God was perfectly content with himself. He needed nothing but wanted something Think on that for a moment. God needed nothing but wanted something. He wanted the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit to be experienced by someone else. So he created us and saw that it was good and it didn't take long before Adam and Eve blew it. One tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat of that tree. And uh, the snake comes slithering through the garden and entices Eve and she entices Adam. And together they eat the fruit of that tree and plunge all of humanity into uh, sin. All of us now are born with a sin nature, a sin problem that began there. God shows up uh, as he did. Uh, Scripture describes him uh, daily. He shows up. Adam and Eve think they can hide from him. Of course they can't. He finds them and a conversation ensues. And in that conversation, we get to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is called the first good news. The reason it is called the first good news is because bad news... It's what makes good news so good. And the bad news of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden needs desperately some good news. So what is the good news? Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is talking to the serpent. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Uh, that was good news for us, but not good news for Jesus. Why? Because what God is saying he's going to do is to put enmity between Satan and Jesus. And when it speaks of, of the offspring bruising uh, Jesus' heel, that's the crucifixion. And when it speaks of Jesus bruising his head, that's the resurrection. Why? Well, a blow to the heel isn't a final blow, but a blow to the head is a final blow. And it will be in the resurrection when Satan has dealt that final blow. But here's the difficulty. God the Father has never before this been separated from God the Son nor God the Spirit. But something's about to happen here on the cross that is unprecedented in the Trinity. The entire Old Testament begins to bend this way and roll out the story of Christ. 
And we'll see that all throughout this morning. So what I want to do today is to, for most of you, reintroduce you to Jesus Christ. I know you know him. You've attended church, some of you, longer than I have. You've known Christ personally longer than I have. So I don't pretend to step in here and uh, give you perhaps even any new information. But really to stir up your minds on who Jesus really is. And then I know in this room are those of you who don't know him personally, you not trust in him as your savior. And for you, if the spirit awakens your heart to the words of God, this could be a brand new introduction for you. Who is this Jesus? First of all, he is Jesus, friend of sinners. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, of a skull, in which Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Do you know what I find interesting? Why does John say the same thing three different ways? Notice this. He says, there they crucified him. And with him, two others. You would think that would be enough. But he adds, one on either side. And Jesus between them. It's the same thing three different ways. John, why are you doing this? Isaiah 53 verse 12 perhaps gives us insight. John, who's quite familiar with the Old Testament. These are the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. They point forward to a Messiah. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah said when the Messiah comes, he will be counted among the sinners. Not the spiritually elite, not the people who figured it all out, not the religious, but the sinners. And if you and I could uh, put a camera on Jesus' life, we would see that, wouldn't we? If we would walk through the Gospels, we would uh, see Jesus interact with some pretty sketchy folks. I mean, if you look at the outset, when he goes to call his, uh, his disciples, the, the 12 who are going to come around him, Matthew is a tax collector. That was almost as low as you could go in that day. I'll explain that in a moment. Matthew was a tax collector. Peter was a loudmouthed fisherman. Or, or consider when Jesus wanted to heal the leper, he didn't have to touch him, but he chose to. He uh, was fine with being ceremonially unclean. Um, Jesus, when he was in the big crowd and the woman with the issue of blood came, uh, she would be considered unclean because of her illness. Uh, Jesus uh, said, somebody touched me. And they called her to himself and he, he was good with her touching him. 
But maybe the story that resonates most in this is Jesus is making his way through a town. There's a massive crowd of people. Uh, If you grew up in church, you know this uh, story because of this cute little song. Because there's a massive crowd of people, and there is a man who hears that Jesus is coming through. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? And so Zacchaeus uh, sees uh, that Jesus is coming through. He goes and finds a tree. He climbs the tree, and when he does, he uh, looks out, and sure enough, there is Jesus. So Jesus comes into the town, and of all people, right? Wouldn't you think if, if you're in charge of Jesus' uh, tour, um, you, you are scheduling things, you're going to bring together the religious elite, right? You're going uh, to take the leaders of the synagogue. Jesus, we've got a lunch appointment with these leaders. We'll share with them your, uh, your campaign in, um, in, in northern Judea. Uh, we'll get together a crusade, and uh, we've got to have all of these people together. Uh, no. Jesus is coming through, and he looks over, and of all those people, he sees Zacchaeus perched in the tree, and he says amidst the throng of people, Zacchaeus, come down, for today we're going to have some lunch. And what happens? Well, all those people who are uh, angry because they didn't get invited to lunch, uh, they start to murmur, does he really know who he is? Uh, I mean, does he know? Does he know that he's a tax collector? If Jesus were the real deal, I think he would have picked up on that. And so they murmur among themselves. Jesus goes in, has lunch, evidently much more than, than, than food is shared because Zacchaeus comes out and when he does, that is the day you hope he's cheated you. Right? That's the day. Why? Because Zacchaeus is totally repentant and he makes an announcement that, that salvation came to his house that day. And he makes the announcement that anyone he's cheated, he will repay four times the amount that he skimmed off the top. Because that's what tax collectors did. They would uh, charge their own people, the Jews, uh, tax. And if, let's say, the tax is 100 bucks, they'll charge 125 bucks, And the people never know how much is Rome's uh, tax, how much is Zacchaeus padding his own pocket with. And, and sure enough, he'll take that. And Zacchaeus had become quite wealthy. Jesus was a friend of sinners. I would say to you this morning, if you've come in this place and you don't know Christ, but you think for a moment that your sin is too big for him, that that the mistakes you've made are too large, Jesus is not put off by your awful sin. He befriends sinners. Uh, who were these two guys hanging on either side of them? The word used to describe them in the, uh, in, in the New Testament suggests they were probably of the zealots. Maybe they were terrorists. Uh, they, they were hefty criminals. John doesn't record the story, but one of them, uh, through the course of events of the crucifixion, believes Jesus is the real deal. And what does Jesus say to, to him? Today, right, Joe? Today you will be with me. In paradise. 
So let me say something to you this morning. If, if you think, hey, I want to be a Christian because I have a lot to bring. I'm sure I can bring a lot to the table. And God's going to use all my gifts and my talents. And, 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 and Christianity is going to be so much better because of me. Uh, could I just say to you that the gospel we preach, uh, the first adherent post, you might say, crucifixion was a hardened criminal. If you're ready to sign up and put your name on the list with a bunch of rotten, dirty, good-for-nothing sinners, welcome. This is who we are. This is who we are. We have no claim to fame. We have no righteousness of our own. We have no merits. There's nothing in our hands we bring, right? Simply to his cross we cling. This is who we are. We are a band of forgiven people. Jesus, friend of sinners, was also Jesus, king of the Jews. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And uh, the Jews read it and they get angry about it, right? So they come to Pilate and say, hey, would you change it? Uh, change it to read this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Kings aren't very important to us today because we don't have them here. Uh, We're unaccustomed to them. But in Jesus' day, they were quite important. And all the way back to Israel's history, uh, after Joshua, kings are very important. As a matter of fact, just finished reading the book of Judges in my reading through the Bible this year. And in Judges 21, 25, last verse in Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, for Israel, a king was not only a political leader, a king was a military leader, but also a spiritual leader. So, So Israel just longed for a king who would free them from Rome. They longed for a king who would uh, uh, enforce all these laws they had developed. Uh, They longed for such a king. And Pilate said on the placard above Jesus' cross, king of the Jews. They don't like that at all. Uh, Pilate, by the way, doesn't believe he's king of the Jews. This is just one more jab at, at the Jews who have frustrated him. So why would that end up there? Psalm 89. The psalmist is talking to David, but also, or God is talking to David, but also I think God is speaking to his own son Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. God is saying to David, you will have a descendant who will reign forever, David. And Pilate says, king of the Jews. Now, king's robes were very important. They wore robes that no one else could wear. Uh, Jesus' robe wasn't valuable. Jesus was very poor. It's amazing that the creator of the universe said that the birds have a nest and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He was homeless. He was quite poor. So his robe wouldn't have been anything of significance, uh, but to these soldiers it must have mattered. 
So they divided his other garments, uh, and then they've got one robe that's just one piece, and they don't want to tear it. What use is it? So what did they decide they'll do, these soldiers? Well, let's just throw the dice, right? We'll just roll, and whoever lands on the highest number gets the robe. But they did not know that Psalm 22 called their very actions. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You will, unless you have already, uh, go over this psalm in your life group this week. It is fascinating that the psalmist writes this in a way that predates the crucifixion as being used by Romans as a form of death. But the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls that the Messiah will be pierced through the hands and pierced through the feet. Even down to the detail, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I introduce to you Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, but also who is the king of the Jews. But lest you think that, well, Jesus was God, and since he was God, this really didn't hurt that badly. Could I also say to you, number three, Jesus was fully human. He was fully human. The humanity spills out. There is a little conjunction here, but... But standing by the cross of Jesus, so the but means let's focus on a different group of people, not the soldiers, not the crowd, but here is a sympathetic group of people standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's unbelievable to me that Jesus in this dying moment is concerned about his mother, but he is. And his best friend is there. Uh, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus and John had a great friendship. So Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. And he looks at John and he says to John, behold your mother. And all that means is take my mom home and take care of her. Why does that matter? Well, there's something to the reality that Joseph is nowhere to be found. Uh, Jesus' stepdad, the husband of Mary, and uh, most commentators believe that Joseph had died. He is off the scene. And if Joseph is off the scene, uh, we discover later that Jesus' half-brothers didn't even believe him to be God at this point. They believe it's a big joke. They are not among the believers. Mary stands alone at the cross, uh, not only as the only person in her family following God, uh, following Christ as the Messiah, but that's her boy. She gave birth to him, and he's dying, bleeding on a cross, and there's no son who wants his mama to go through such excruciating pain. 
And so Jesus, in that moment, feels not only the spiritual weight of your sin and mine, he not only feels the physical pain of death, but he also feels the emotional strain of a mom who's watching her son. With the crown of thorns on his head, he's stripped naked. They're mocking him, and he says to her, behold your son. And John feels the importance of this moment. And scripture says, from that hour, he took Mary into his own house and took care of her as if she were his own mother. Jesus was fully human. Two weeks ago tomorrow, I uh, did a funeral for a 10-week-old baby. Mom and dad, baby was born premature, but able to come home early. Uh, Didn't even have to go to NICU. Mom's a nurse. Baby became ill, started running a low-grade fever. She took him to the doctor. Doctor said, we don't see anything here that substantiates anything that's, that's difficult. That a little bit of medicine can't handle. Give the baby a little bit of medicine. Three days later, mom is holding the baby. Just looks away as any mom would. Looks down and the baby's arms are blue. He quit breathing in her arms. As a nurse, she immediately called 911, began CPR. The ambulance got there, get the baby to the hospital, put the baby in pediatric ICU. 24 hours later, the baby died unknown to the doctors. When she took him in, that fever was a sign of a bacterial infection. That bacterial infection had shut down uh, little Everett's lungs. His kidneys were gone. His body was just died from within. I walk in to do this funeral for this family who does not attend church. And as I do, this mom comes in and she's got one thing in her hands. It's just a baby blue blanket about this long. And she just grips it And someone has to literally help her down the aisle. Excruciating pain. I'm convinced that moms know this in a way dads do not. I'll just say to you, do not remove the humanity from the cross. If you're a mom, this is unthinkable, isn't it? And Jesus, in that moment, cares for his mom. He was fully human. 
and fully God. And that leads us to my last introduction of him, Jesus, Son of God. He was so human that he, begot, he became hungry in his life, and he was so God that he took a little boy's lunch and fed probably 20,000 people with it. Oh, what a guy. He, he was so human that he got tired and fell asleep in the boat. And, and the disciples did what some of you have done this week. They ran down into the boat where Jesus was asleep and said, Jesus, don't you care? Right? Some of you have said those very words this week. Jesus, don't you care? And uh, they said, don't you care? There's a storm. We're about to die. And Jesus wakes up from his sleep and he goes out. And he's so God that he simply speaks. And when he does, the storm's calm. He is so human that when his friend Lazarus died and Jesus showed up to the town where Lazarus lived and saw Mary and Martha, Lazarus' siblings who were weeping and grieving over the death of Lazarus, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was so human, but he was so God that just a few minutes later, he spoke into that tomb where Lazarus lay and said, Lazarus, come forth and And here comes Lazarus, all mummified, walking out. He's fully human and he's fully God. I would introduce to you Jesus, Son of God. John doesn't record one of Jesus' most memorable uh, sayings from the cross. Uh, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's go back to Keller's quote. The only reason God would have for creating us was not to get the cosmic love and joy of relationship because he already had that, but to share it. So what Jesus lost on the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I gained Jesus was forsaken that we might be accepted, rejected, that we might be received. God was so willing for us to share in this cosmic love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that for a moment in history, there was unbelievably painful separation. I think Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him. There are three pronouns that are huge in here. Our, he, and him. Our, that's easy enough. That's you and me. He is God, made him Jesus. So for our sake... God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I believe the moment that happened is when Jesus screamed from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So let's push rewind then and go all the way back to pre-creation of the universe and of Adam and Eve and the rest of us. When God said, hey, let us make man in our image. When he said that, since God is omniscient, he knew about this moment. Christ must have cringed. The Spirit must have winced. And the Father must have tightened up a tad, right? Why? It would cause a temporary breaking separation. But for a moment in history of this unbelievable relationship... After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge uh, of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and died. No accident here. Psalm 69, the, the psalmist is writing. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. What reproaches have broken the psalmist's heart? We'd have to kind of get into the history of the psalm to know. But what reproaches have broken Jesus' heart? Mine and yours. Ah, reproaches have broken my heart. So that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. They gave me poison for food. Listen to this. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. There's an interesting development here with language. Uh, there are two words used to describe something being completed in all of John's Gospels. If you read them, or John's Gospel, there are two words. And he switches gears here. It's fascinating. And begins to use another word. The word means to complete a task. It is the same word that Jesus used when he says, it is finished. In the Greek, you may have read this, to telestai. It is finished is the word in the Greek. So when John says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, he uses that word, all was now finished to complete a task. Uh, he said to fulfill scripture, uh, same word to complete a task. It is finished to telestai. What was Jesus saying? Father, I've done what you've told me to do. The task is completed. It is finished. Now, I hope one of the things that you're seeing is that Scripture is not just a loose conglomeration of stories that have uh, some good moral themes about them, but there you're beginning to realize that all of the Bible is about this one and only Son, Jesus. There's one other occurrence. These are so rare, you have to, to hone in on them. There's one other occurrence where we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all together. 
Matthew 3, 13 through 17. It's at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John uh, to be baptized by him. John, (laughs) not me, he's saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying? I'm a man on a mission. I'm a man on a mission. I've got to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased in this moment, in this snapshot in history, we see Jesus stepping into the waters, being numbered among the sinners. And when he is, heaven opens up to him because he is now on course to tetelestai. He is on course to finish the job the Father has sent him to do. And the Father knows that walking into the waters, these nasty, dirty waters of the Jordan River with nasty sinners who have called out their sins and Jesus walks into those waters just as if he is one of them that the father in that moment just opens heaven wide and says hey look at my boy there's my boy I am so proud of him and the spirit says hey let me second that and comes and descends in the form of a dove and there they are all together in this remarkable moment because salvation is about to be carried out. I'm about to preach. That is amazing. God does a work here that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it all leads to a moment of unthinkable separation in order for you to be brought near and for me to be brought near to Christ. Jesus had to die. Ravi Zacharias says, there is no other religion with a cross. There isn't. That's why the old songwriter would say, would say nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So I invite you this morning, if you want to join the ranks of vile sinners, lawbreakers, welcome. If you're bringing anything in your hands and you think that it might be enough to pay your sin debt, you still haven't gotten what I've been trying to say to you. And you haven't gotten Christ.
who was separated from the Father, that you and I might be brought near. They're together today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he longs for you to know him. You say, how? How can I know Christ? Well, you've got to own up to being a sinner. If he's a friend of sinners, that's a prerequisite. So you've got to be a pretty awful dude, right? You've got to be a sinner. Uh, I'm not talking about, you know, you've got to have this amazing testimony of, you know, you did all this stuff and God saved you. There are those testimonies are wonderful, but all sin separates you from him. And then you've got to believe that he on the cross bridged the gap. No one else could have. Wow. Let me pray for us.